0: I wanna start with a question today, maybe a simple question that has a complicated answer. Simple question that has a complicated answer. What is a church? What is a church? Nervous, chatter in the middle section. Uh, You know, if you were to go out on the street or approach somebody out on the beach or downtown, ask them what a church is, I think you would get some very interesting answers. And the, the dictionary doesn't help us at all. The, the dictionary defines church as a building. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines church as a building used for religious worship. But what we know is not all churches have buildings, right? Case in point, right? We're in a tent right now. This is still a church. So, so what's a church? I remember when we planted this church, All People's Church, 13 years ago, And we had to file for our our, our IRS paperwork. That's how you file with the federal government to get tax deductions for donations as a charitable organization. And we had to complete a 15-question questionnaire about our church. And we had to answer questions like, does your church have literature of its own? Does it have a distinct religious history? And we had to do these things to prove that we were a real church. But obviously, there are places on earth where churches do not have tax-deductible status. So that's not necessarily what a church is. And actually looking around the world at what a church is, makes the question and the answer a little more confusing. I thought of some churches that I've gotten to visit or attend just in my life, and I thought, wow, these are very, very different places and experiences of worship. I wanna show you a few real quick. This is a church that I got to visit in Cologne, Germany. First church I ever visited outside the United States, about 15 years old. It's massive Gothic cathedral in the middle of Germany. And, of course, very inspiring, this very kind of otherworldly architecture. And you go inside, and the whole presentation in in this church was about how the church survived World War II and the bombings of World War II and all that was involved in that. That was very interesting. So then I, I remember another church that I was able to visit. There's a picture right here. This church was in, uh, the, on, the, on the island of Papua and Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. And this church actually was outside, kind of like our church right now, but it was a little different than our church. The service went three and a half hours. Now there's no football game this afternoon so I can just keep going. Um I don't think you want me to but but that the worship was a little bit longer at that church it was in multiple languages and they did worship like ours they also did hip hop they did some break dancing it was a lot of fun actually and a very powerful experience at that church here's another church that I that I saw I saw this one online here's a church in France Now this is a hard church to visit I think to visit, you actually have to climb for 20 days and find a purple flower and do a secret knock on the door. I'm not quite sure, Um, but wow, very interesting. I'm sure the view is great from up there, but you know, anyway, it's a church, right? That's my case in point. There are very different churches out there. Here's another church that I found. Uh, This was on a website, the 20 most interesting church buildings in America. (laughs) And this is a church in a Shell gas station in Huntington Beach, California, and I got some, yeah, out there. Okay, have you been to this church? <laughs> Somebody's pointing at someone, okay. Um, Praise Christian sitter. God bless them. I hope they're meeting today. Got their shell, got some lions out front, got some cross. Looks like a great place, who knows, okay? That's a church building. Okay, here's another, another church we can learn about. This is a church in India. This is the most powerful church service I have ever attended, my whole life. It was outside, people sitting in a circle, no frills. And the way that the church service started was they had us all go around and share our testimonies, our, our journeys with God, our journey of meeting with God. And because I was the guest, I, I got to go first. And, you know, I think I have a pretty good testimony. Thank you very much. And so I'm just kidding. So I, I, shared, I shared my story, but I was immediately very humbled as, as this group of, of global Christians went around and share their stories and I knew it was going to be kind of a different service when the first person shared a testimony like this. She said, "Well, how I became a Christian." That's an interesting question. I was bit by a snake and the snake died, so I thought I would become a Christian. I'm like okay. Well, wow. okay, let me kind of keep going. You know, this is the little icebreaker question. We go to the next, we go to the next person in the circle. How did you become a Christian? Well, I became a Christian because a terrorist came to kill me, but he was bit by a snake. And then he died, so I became a Christian. Noticing a theme here which, with, with some snakes. Third person and the circle, this literally happened. How did you become a Christian? Well, I was bit by a snake and I died. And they prayed for me, I came back to life, so I became a Christian. I know I'm breaking some boxes here, but this is just from my life experience. Then the leader of the church stands up, how I became a Christian, interesting question. Well, um, I was a terrorist and God smote me, so I decided to become a Christian. <laughs> wow, from this little, little place in India, they do 24 hour prayer, they get on motorcycles and plant churches, all amongst people that have never heard the name of Jesus. Amazing place, the most impacting church service I think I will ever attend. Next, next slide. This is a church in Cairo, Egypt. There was a, there was a priest actually, that was asking God to build his church and God said, my church is under you. And he started digging in the garbage dumps of Cairo, Egypt and he found this cave and built a megachurch in it. (laughs) It's called the cave church. You can look it up on the internet. This is a church in Iceland. You can sit and enjoy communion on your reindeer skin, (laughs) get down on your freezing knees and come to the altar. I don't know, this church makes me feel very cold. <laughs> Jeff, does this look interesting to you at all? You lived in Massachusetts. No, he's not, let's take it down. We're feeling cold, we can take it down. Okay, well, if you wanted to invite a friend or neighbor, maybe you're new here this morning, welcome to all people's church. You might say something like this. Well, it's on University Avenue and we share a parking lot with the Burlington Coke factory and there's a big black fence, but just come behind the fence. Everyone's really nice back there. And I mean, you know, What is a church, right? It's it's a confusing question to answer. And I think one thing I didn't anticipate is how in the last year and a half, with all that's gone on in our country, how churches have been in the center of the national debate. Just... Every time you turn somewhere, it's some conversation about church in our national forum, whether or not churches should be open, health restrictions, and churches, how churches are approaching diversity, how churches are approaching politics, religious freedom, right to assembly, how churches are handling that. And, you know, what's interesting, actually, in this church, 20% of you have joined in the last year. so we have a lot of new people that are experiencing church. Somebody clap. That's a good thing to clap for. Um... But again, it leads us to this question, what is a church? What are we trying to do here? And there's so many ideas and opinions on what it is. I think it's important for us to take a moment today, and this is my goal for our talk, is to upgrade our beliefs about the church. That's my desire today. I believe that God wants to give us an upgrade in our beliefs about the church. I want to speak to you today from the subject, I believe in the church. I believe in the church. Let's pray together and just ask God to soften our hearts for this word. Lord, we thank you. That you said in your scriptures, to him be the glory in the church. So we pray that we'd see your glory today as we study your vision for the church. For your Holy Spirit, you'd come and teach us and guide us during our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Three reasons I believe in the church, and this is what we're going to be exploring in this talk today. Three reasons. First of all, I believe in the church because of its founder. I believe in the church because of its founder. Secondly, I believe in the church because of its foundation. And thirdly, I believe in the church because of its future. I believe in the church because of its founder, its foundation, and its future. Okay, you ready to have a little belief workout on the church? It's going to be a good time. Here's a little test for you. Who founded the church? Somebody said Peter. Anybody else? Any other ideas? Heard some Jesus's? Okay, Peter's very close. He was part of the original group of d- Jesus' disciples. But Jesus actually says in the Bible, I founded the church. That Jesus is building the church. Here we go. Matthew chapter 16, he says, I will build my church. Let's look at this in context. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The disciples are saying, people say you're a prophet. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? You're my disciples. And Simon Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell of you, Peter, and on this, excuse me, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Jesus said, I will build my, uh-oh, Jesus said, I will build my, right, Jesus founded the church. So it stands to reason, if you're going to try to explore a worldview, if you're going to try to explore a belief system, if you're going to try to explore community that someone started, that you would want to go look at the life of the founder, right? We love to do that in our culture. We study the, the, the founding fathers of America. We, we study the founders of companies. There's that, there's that dove again. It's been showing up all day. All the way in the back. There it goes. Hopefully people will listen to the sermon even though the Holy Spirit is showing up like a dove. No, we like that. That's cool. That's very cool. So if you're going to study a worldview... You want to study the life of the founder. So I thought, what are some major worldviews in our society today? How how can we maybe compare those worldviews to what Jesus taught as the founder of the church? Well, I thought of four different worldviews, Buddhism, Islam, uh, atheism, and Marxism, four different worldviews present in our society today, today. and I want to talk to you a little about them and maybe how, what the founders of those worldviews taught that was a little bit different than Jesus. So we're gonna to go to school for a minute. We're gonna do a little comparative religion study and study the, the statements of these worldviews in their own words. Okay, worldview founders. What worldview founders say, Buddha. So Buddhism, a large religion, a large belief system in Asia. Also, here in the West, in the United States, many people subscribe to Buddhist teachings. We kind of have Buddhism-lite here in America where people, people dabble in this idea of Buddhism. And what, what Buddha taught was that there were four noble truths. There are four truths that you need to learn to live out in your life. And if you would live these truths out, you would find inner peace, that peace is inside you. And if you didn't get it in this life, that's okay. You could just die and be reincarnated and try again. And you would continue to do that until you found inner peace. But the key is that he taught that peace didn't come from outside of us, it came from inside of us. He said this, no one can save us but ourselves. In Buddhism, the idea is that you're saving yourself. What about Islam? Well, Islam was founded by Muhammad, who Muslims teach as a prophet. And I've been all over the Muslim world in different countries and have had such a wonderful experience getting to know people of this faith and being hosted and actually have had friends that, that believe this worldview. And what Muhammad taught was very different than what Jesus taught. Here's one quote, for example. He said this, giving alms can erase sin. So So in this worldview, they believe in the idea of sin, that there's a right and there's a wrong, but their approach is follow these five pillars. Do these five behaviors, and if you do that well enough, you can get rid of your sins. For example, giving alms or giving money to the poor. Karl Marx, Marx, an influential economist in world history who taught a lot about how the, the world is a class struggle, and that was his worldview. Everything in the world goes back to people that have means and people that don't, the owning class and the working class. And his whole end goal was for society to actually destruct itself so everything would be equal. This is what Karl Marx said. He said this, religion is the opiate of the people. Basically, religion is a drug that powerful people use to control other people. That was his worldview. That's what He said, Finally, modern-day atheism, a big proponent of that and founder of that would be Sigmund Freud, the, the psychologist in the 1900s, who tied every human desire and all societal issues back to repressed sexuality. His whole statement and belief system was that people have repressed sexual desires, and that's the reason for the problems that we experience. He said this, sexuality is the key. Well, that really reflects some things in our worldview today, doesn't it? In our culture, there's some people that really espouse to that. There's a lot of conversations about sexual identity in our world today. And I was thinking about this, the different founders of, of world religions and worldviews and thinking how different they were than Jesus. And then I saw this on the news. I was watching the news and I saw this, this, this incident in Egypt. And what they were doing is they were going into a historical Egyptian museum and they were moving the mummified bodies, like the, the actual mummies of kings and queens, of pharaohs and their queens from ancient Egypt. And they were moving them. They're all dressed up like this, all dressed up like ancient Egyptians. And they moved, actually, their mummies. There's a mummy inside of here. I'm just waiting for Tom Cruise to show up somewhere and for there to be a big explosion. Okay. The, the, there, there, was a, there was a mummy inside here that they moved to another museum. And, and I showed this to my kids and this words just came, came out of me. Kids, isn't it amazing that our God doesn't live in something built by human hands? Jesus is alive. If there's anything that's different between Jesus and the founders of other worldviews is that Jesus' tomb is empty. You can go all throughout Asia to different Buddhist monasteries that claim they have the ashes of Buddha. Buddha died, he was cremated. You can go to Saudi Arabia, to Medina, and see where Muhammad is buried. Muhammad died. He's buried there in Saudi Arabia. You can go to London. You can see the graves of Karl Marx. You can see the graves of Sigmund Freud. They're buried there. You can go to Jesus's grave. Guess what? Newsflash, he's not there. Jesus is alive. That's what we just went through at Easter, celebrating that. That's fundamental. To understanding the difference between what Jesus taught and different world views. Actually, when we gather in his name now, he says, I'm still showing up. He blesses us with his presence, with the Holy Spirit. So so what did Jesus say about himself that was so different? What makes him so remarkable? Here's a few thoughts. Matthew 20. He actually came, he said, to give his life. He knew that we couldn't find peace within ourselves. He knew we couldn't be good enough following all of these pillars or rules. Or We can't even follow 10 commandments, right? Much less all the other things in the Bible. He said, no, I'm gonna give my life for you. I'm gonna be perfect so you don't have to be. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. It's actually through believing in me that you will live, not following a set of rules and regulations, He made it even more explicit in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way. we just sang it. The question is, do we believe it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said about himself. I believe in the church because I believe in its founder. I believe in Jesus. What Jesus taught was entirely different than the founders of other worldviews. And it stands the reason that everyone should consider what Jesus taught and hopefully make a decision to follow Jesus. What did Jesus teach about the church? A lot of people say, well, hey, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. The church, eh, maybe, maybe not. Take it or leave it. Well, Jesus, even as a young boy, they couldn't find him. You know where he was? He said, I'm in my father's house. Jesus loved the church. He, he loved the temple. He loved the place, the meeting of God. He said, I'm in my father's house. That's where I want to be. Later in John chapter 2, he comes into the gathering of the people of God, into the temple, and he's, he's upset because they're taking advantage of people. There's financial impropriety. He throws over tables. You know what John writes there? In John chapter 2, he says, zeal for your house has consumed him. Jesus was zealous for the house of God. Jesus was passionate about his people. He was passionate about the place, actually, yes, but even more passionate about the people that were in it. Jesus was zealous for his church. He had a heart for God's house. I believe in the church because I believe in Jesus and therefore I wanna bless what Jesus blessed, amen? Yeah, Jesus believed in the church and so should we if we want to follow him. I believe in the church because of its foundation because of its foundation. The foundation of a building is, is so important. You know, it, you, you get your, your plans, right? And then we're actually going through this as a church right now, building our new facility over across the highway. And you get your plans and then those plans get approved. And after the plans get approved, you prepare all your materials and then there's a moment where you lay the foundation. Jesus spoke about the importance of foundations. He said there's one guy that builds his house on this foundation, on the sand, that doesn't go too well when the storms and the wind come. There's another guy that builds his foundation on the rock and that's where you wanna be when the storms of life come. So foundations are very important and the foundation of a building actually determines the scope of that building. It determines the shape of that building. It determines the outcome of what that building will look like. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter two, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. There's a lot of ways you can interpret that verse, but one, one way is you can look at what the apostles and prophets said and did, and you will see God's plan for the church. Jesus built the church and then his disciples, Peter and others, they, they, they partnered with him and, and they had the blueprint. And the, so they started to lay the foundation. What kind of foundation did they lay? I'm going to show you one verse that shows a biblical vision for the church. Before I do that, let's look at the word church in the Bible. It's a Greek word. This is the first time Jesus used it in Matthew 16. And it's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Now, that's not a word you necessarily need to know, but it's it's an important word because it has two distinct parts to the word. One is to assemble, and the other part of the word is to be called out. It means a called out. Assembly. And so let's let's look for a minute with this definition in mind at this key verse that helps us understand the blueprint, the foundation for the church. That it's easy to remember because it's 2020. It's Acts 2020. Let's turn there together to look at this foundational scripture for the church. Acts 2020. Paul's writing, excuse me, Paul's talking, and he's he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and it says this: I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Have taught publicly in two settings. He talks about the foundation, the two aspects of church life. He talks about publicly and house to house. Publicly, the group that gathers together for an assembly, and house to house when we are called out to be together as believers. Two aspects of church life, two parts of the foundation publicly and house to house. Large gatherings publicly and small group. Community, house to house. You tracking with me? This is so important because different things happen in both of those settings. A different thing happens when we gather like this than when we gather together as believers for a smaller fellowship in a home. I just wrote down some thoughts here. This might be helpful to you. When we're in small groups, this is the called out portion. This is when God calls us away from society to, to grow in our discipleship together. What, is that, what does that look like? Well, this is where we get real, right? This is where we develop deeper friendships. This is where we can be truly known. Let's see if it'll land right there. Oh, man, I thought it was going to be right next to me. We're going to have a St. Francis moment. It was going to be awesome. All right, get real. This is where we get real with each other. In a small group, everyone uses their gifts, If you're hosting small group and your bathroom's dirty, it doesn't really matter if you have the gift of helps or hospitality. You need to clean your bathroom, okay? Everyone, everyone is using their gifts, right? And you don't have to be like the the black diamond expert level to use your gifts. in small group, like, I remember the first small groups I was a part of, and I had the opportunity to pray out loud. I'd never even prayed out loud before. And I was able to pray for someone. Or I remember leading worship. Now, if you're just learning piano, we probably can't put you up on the stage to play here with David Kroll who has a music degree, right? Here in the, in the larger assembly, we experience more people that have expert level in their giftings. But it's a great place to learn and experiment and find the gifts that God has given you. People in your season of life, such an important part of small group. You get to talk about what it's like to be a business owner or a young parent or someone that's coming right out of college or an empty nester. That's where we have that kind of fellowship to explore, hey, what does the kingdom look like in my season of life? Okay, the assembly. Man, when we come together like this, this is where we get to experience transcendent worship. Can anybody just give me an amen to that? Like, Our worship community, by the way, has just come back from a retreat. They've been all together since Friday night. And they're still here serving us, creating this amazing experience. Let's just give them a round of applause. Thank them. Bless them. The corporate assembly is where we get to experience people that are more honed and trained in their gifts. Doing ministry. uh, We get a sense of group identity and mission and belonging. God speaks to us as a people. When we come together, this happens so many times in the Old Testament where the people would assemble to get a word from God. And then finally here in this larger assembly, we just get to enjoy a more diverse group of people people of different ages. I mean, in this service alone, there's probably people from, I don't know, 12, 15 countries just looking around, knowing different people. This is a very diverse group. And so something different happens in our lives in both of these settings. And it causes me to believe in the church because what I see is churches are called to holistic transformation. That's what we're called to. Two stories. I think of the house to house portion I think of the, the, the small groups portion. When I think of this story, I was over at the guest center, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, and someone in our church came up to me. They were very excited. And they said, all of a sudden, I got a kidney. I got a kidney. I'm thinking, what is this person talking about? I got a kidney? Like, are we, I know we've been giving candy to the kids. Are there like some jelly beans that look like kidneys? I truly had no idea. And, uh, and, and some other people walked up, and they were all in life group together. And then I heard the story that someone in their life group was donating a kidney to someone else in their life group that had been on a waiting list, an organ donation list. I mean, speechless, right? They they took whatever vision we had for a life group to the next level. I mean, that is amazing, sacrificial community life. I think of the assembly, you know, I just wanna say this, everyone needs a church. And I think of my father-in-law who, who had a heart for felons. And uh, he'd been an IBM executive for 39 years. You know, not somebody that had any dealings in, in necessarily the underworld with crime. And, and also just trying to figure out how to help people that are coming out of institutional prisons and help them make a new life and the mercy and grace that that requires. But he knew they needed a church. And so he started planting churches. And now they have four. I just think he got it. He got the vision. Didn't have to be perfect, man. He's having to learn a lot, but he believes in the church. I believe in the church because of its founder. I believe in the church because of its foundation. And I believe in the church because of its future. I believe in the church because of its future. Let's look back at our key verse, Matthew 16. We see this little little note. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What an interesting thing for Jesus to say in his same breath of introducing the church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. By the way, I just want to say this. The church is going to be okay. If you turn to the end of the Bible, we see the church prepared as a glorious bride, prepared for her husband coming down from heaven. And full glory and full splendor God has a plan for the restoration, the strengthening, and the victory of his church at the end of time. So we're going to be okay. I believe in the ultimate future of the church. But actually, I believe in the near future of the church too. You know, that idea the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. Oh, I've seen one in the service, actually, a rocket scientist. That's funny I said that. Um, it doesn't take a very bright person to, 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 um, to look at our society and see this, hell has a plan for the next generation. There is a demonic agenda in our society to destroy the next generation. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I I don't know if you've really thought about this. We don't live in a society that values the next generation. Oh sure, we value youth, but we value our youth. We value our endless summer. We, we don't care about the people that are coming up in the next generations. How do I know that? Well, schools have been the last thing to open in our society in the last two years. What's that say about what we value as a society and the last generation? How do I know that? Well, I turn on the TV and I look at the media that our kids are being exposed to. The immorality, the absolutely heartbreaking stories and I see hell has a plan for the next generation. And, and actually, not even the immorality. You can just look at the amount of advertising, the amount of ads that our kids are exposed to. Last night, we were watching Bear Grills As a family, I love Bear Grills. And he's a believer, and we like, to, we like his show. And the ads came on, and I turned them off. I always turn off the ads in my house and my kids are like, hey, we wanted to watch that ad. It was an ad for like senior adults with diabetes. That's what the ad was for. I was like, you aren't sick. You don't need to watch that pharmaceutical ad, but we wanted to. You don't need it, okay? Like just the amount of advertising alone that our kids are exposed to. You know, you look at the national debt, hey, just put it on the credit card. That doesn't work for families. It doesn't work for nations. I'll tell you that. We don't value the next generation. And you look at our environment, you know, the water crisis here on the West. We, we don't value, we aren't willing to sacrifice for the next generation. And I just want to propose to you something. The church is the one institution on earth where that is happening. The church is a group of people that are willing to sacrifice for the next generation. I believe it because I've seen it with my own eyes. I loved what was going on before this service. Actually, we were praying Um, just as leaders, and Audrey was praying, and she said something that I thought was very, Audrey's 30, okay, and she she prayed, God, we pray for the next generation that you would get us old people out of the way and you'd be able to to really impart something to them. I thought, awesome, that's the sign of a healthy church, right? That we're looking towards the next generation. How do I know that? Because God introduces himself as a God of generations. He says in Exodus chapter three, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. God's a generational God. We see in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to turn the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. I'm going to redeem generations. We see in the New Testament, there's one guy that gets on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? You know, the promise that's given to him, you will be saved, you and your household. God is into generations. He's into redeeming generations and he's redeeming generations. And he's called the church to sacrifice for the next generation. Because if we lose the next generation, we've lost everything. Is this, is this resonating? Am I, okay, we're, just, we're taking it in, it's going deeper. Okay, all right, good. If we lose the next generation, we've lost everything. At the beginning of 2020, I had a dream. A dream I believe was from God that I'd like to share with you. Uh, Not every dream that we have is from God, obviously. I believe that this one was. I was driving in a car in the heartland of America. And I went to a friend's home and we couldn't find his kids. So we started to look all around town for his kids. Remember, this dream was at the beginning of 2020. We started to drive through his city and the whole city was shut down. I remember particularly that you couldn't get into the post office. But the post office was closed and all the other shops and things were shut down. So we looked in the street. There was no one on the street. The streets were abandoned. We couldn't find his children. And then we went into an old church and it had windows that were broken and it had kind of been torn up. There was no one in the church. The church was shut down. There was no one there. The kids weren't there. We went out into the street and I started to, to, to hear on the street some people that were out actually committing acts and saying things just related to racism. And I was, I was really broken when I saw that and we continued to look for these children. And then we arrived at an old country school, and and I walked up to the cafeteria of this old country school, and I saw all of these bicycles and and, uh, uh, little tricycles and uh, bikes with training wheels, and it was obvious that, that the children were in this school and they'd actually biked themselves there. And when I went into the cafeteria, I was immediately overwhelmed with the glory of God. Because there were these children that had come to gather and worship and seek the Lord. I just want to tell you, regardless of what has happened in the last year and a half, God has a plan for the next generation. John chapter 9. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? Jesus doesn't even answer the question. You know what he says? This happened, that the glory of God would be revealed in this young man. And I believe that some of the challenges we're experiencing in our nation that God is going to use to reveal his glory to the next generation. If you agree with me, say amen. It means I agree. Okay. God has a plan for the next generation. So I've been asking God about that. You know, I've been seeing, I've been seeing. God work in the children's ministry in our church and the youth ministry. Fifteen twenty kids coming to Jesus this Easter. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, if you even think you might be called a little bit to children's or youth ministry, this message is your confirmation. Okay, just jump right in. It'll be great. And um, I'm looking at that, and then God surprised me with my own family. So I just want to close with this story. God surprised me with my own family. I had, I had an obligation in Salt Lake City, Utah. There's an Antioch church there that I'm, I'm, I partner with, I'm on the board of, and so I needed to speak at that church. But it was during my son's spring break and so I thought, well, this will be great. I can speak at the church and bless them and, and minister to that team. And then I can bring my son and we can go skiing the next day. It'll be a two for one, right? You know, as a pastor and a parent, you're trying to figure things out. And I was trying to, to work that through. And it looks like a good plan for me and my family. So, so we fly to Salt Lake City and we're there with the team, amazing people. But I didn't feel that great about my first night's message. It was just kind of, it was a little all over the place. I actually printed off my notes and, And I didn't have page numbers, and the notes got mixed up. I don't know if this ever happened to you. I was just a little all over the place. God moved, but it was challenging. I thought, well, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Maybe, Maybe this whole weekend is about investing in my son. The next morning, we were able to spend some time together. It was a great memory. And that night, the church had a prayer and encounter night, a night they were coming together and to seek God and ask what the Holy Spirit had for them, and they asked me to lead that night. And I honestly didn't know what to do. I didn't have a plan for the night. And I only had one word from God. God just spoke to me. There'll be someone there that has, that has an issue with their knee. And when they move their knee, it pops out this way due to an injury they've had. And I'd like you to pray for their healing. As I prayed for the service, that's all that God put in my heart. So we gathered for the service, and I shared that word. And immediately, someone on the worship team raised his hand. I said, that's me. I have that injury. And so he... he came off the stage and down to the front of the church where we were begin to pray for him. And then we, we began to highlight other people that might want to receive prayer. Well, I noticed in the service that there was no children's ministry. All the kids were in the service. And I thought, well, didn't have a word from God, but I thought it'd be good to engage the kids in prayer. So I said, I want every group to have a child praying with it in, in the group for the person that we're believing for healing or transformation in their life. And so my, my son and I, we went to the first person and my son's looking at me like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pray. And I'm like, just put your hand out. And he's like, but where? And we're kind of, I'm trying to show him like an appropriate place to lay hands on someone. I mean, the whole thing was very humorous. He, he puts his hand on this, this lady and God just touches her. I mean, she starts the ugly cry. Like, the God is healing me from the inside out, the gasp, the crying. And I'm, I'm looking at my son, and he's looking at me. I'm just like, keep your hand on there, you know? And afterwards, he, he asked me to go to the bathroom with them. He said, uh, in the bathroom, he looks at me and goes, my hand, it's numb. It's tingling. What is that, Dad? I said, I think it's the Holy Spirit. Like, let's just keep praying for people. So, so then we go to this young man that had responded about the knee word. We pray for him. And I've, I've, I'm a pastor. I, I pray for a lot of people. It was one of those moments where it was an instantaneous divine healing. This doesn't always happen. I don't, it's not my job to explain why it always happened. Jesus has told us to try and do it. And so we, we jump in, we pray for this guy. My son touches his knee, and he's healed. And we know he's healed because he starts to share his story. And in his story, he was a ballet dancer. And he actually traveled as part of a ballet group. He wasn't able to dance anymore. And during the service earlier, we had sang the song, All Hail King Jesus. Anybody like that song? Good song. And he had wanted to dance, but he couldn't because of his energy injury. And so we said, well, how do you know it's healed? And he said, well, I think I'll be able to dance. And so Brandon gets up on the piano, starts playing All Hail King Jesus, and the guy starts dancing. And he is doing these crazy ballet moves, and God literally, before our eyes, turns his mourning into dancing. He's healed. And... I'm looking at my son. He's looking at me. Then there's another young man that comes up to us. We end up praying for him three times until he's jumping up and down and God has healed him too. What's the point I'm trying to make? Exciting for me. What about us? That only happens in the church. I wasn't praying for God to use my son to heal someone that morning. That happened because we were in the assembly. We were together in the presence of God where Jesus says, I have given you authority to bind and to loose. And we gathered together and a breakthrough happened as we gathered in Jesus' name. That only happens in the church. They talk about, well, we have a multi-generational workplace. Well, kind of. That There's generation gaps, Right? in the workplace. The church is the only place where generations can come together where where the vibrancy of the youth can reignite those that are aged and those that need wisdom are able to get it from some people with a little life experience. That's the church. That's who we are. I believe in the church because the church is generational and I believe in the church because of its future. I mean just last night there there was a man who he texted me earlier in the week, I'm on the brink of death. I can't sleep. I mean, daily, daily, terrible texts. Um, I was trying to figure, I was out of town. I was trying to figure out how to get someone to go pray for him. He came to church. It was probably uncomfortable the whole time. He's been in a lot of pain. At the end of our service, 12 or 15 people prayed for him. He texted me this morning. I slept the first night last night that I've slept in three weeks. God healed him. As we gather together, that happens in the church. God is giving us an opportunity to upgrade our beliefs on the church. The church, if you ever watch a movie, somebody comes into a church for a kind of a moment of reflection in the movie, the church is always empty. The world tells us that the church is empty and irrelevant. The Bible teaches that the church is literally the house of God. There's this idea out there that the church is judgmental. Yeah, there's some judgmental people in the church. How do you know? Well, I've met some of them, okay? People are people, right? People have issues. The church is called to be a house of mercy, a place of grace. That's what, that's how Jesus designed the church. Some people think the church is out of touch. I mean, if if you look at the news, you would think Christians are the worst people on earth. That's what you think. Try introducing yourself as a pastor sometime at a kid's soccer game. People look at you like you work at a morgue, you know, like, oh, I'm so sorry. You seem so nice. I'm like, great. Okay. Some people think the church is out of touch. The church is actually the pillar and foundation of truth. That's what the Bible says. Holding the world together. We've been taught that the church is optional to our faith. No one's taking attendance. But your relationship with Jesus, yes, it's personal. But the fruit is only seen in relationships. Show me how spiritually healthy you are. Ask me and I'll I'll ask you about your relationships. That's that's where we live it out. That's the church. Our society has tried to silence the church. Right? But the Bible says that we're a voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. I believe in the church. Do you? <laughs> Let's stand together.